0: Coronavirus plus jihadists equals terror overload. Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, a psychiatrist, and you are a terrorist therapist. Yes, uh, although you wouldn't know it know it from the news, which is uh, coronavirus 24-7, terrorism is still going on in the world. I hate to break it to you. But there are things both in the u s and uh in the Middle East and all over the world actually um where terrorism is still existing and there's terrorist news there is there are still things happening that you kind of need to know about, and so your terrorist therapist is here <laughs> to tell you about it um I mean, I know that uh it's hard to wrap your mind around coronavirus, no less having to remember that terrorism still exists. So at the end of today's show, I am going to give you some tips um, about how to uh, feel better in your current situation uh, and in order to sort of soften what I'm going to be telling you about today in regard to the fact that terrorism hasn't died, in fact, terrorists are using this time to try to get stronger. Um, I've talked a little bit about this in uh, previous uh, podcasts in regard to coronavirus and terrorism. I mean, that's sort of the overall message. But so today I'm gonna be talking about different aspects of it, uh, how jihadists or terrorism um, are still, or are in fact, interacting with coronavirus which is basically what I've been trying to tell you ever since coronavirus has been taking over the news. So, um, during our lockdown, um, th- there are things happening. Uh, you know, I've talked about um, lone wolves, for example, being activated and there are various things happening that may in fact, during lockdown or after lockdown, may you want to go back to lockdown when we're allowed to uh, come out of our homes. Uh, We may want to huddle inside even though we're allowed to get out if terrorists are um, continuing to or taking advantage of, um, you know, our distraction with coronavirus. So now, um, we can't forget about terrorism, because, because as much as I kind of hate to, it seems like, it seems like uh, um, double the pain, but you need to know about these things so that you're not caught off guard when we are allowed to come out. Now, when 9-11 happened, and even after that, during our ongoing terrorist threat. Um, You know, even after 9-11, of course, we've been continuing to be under the threat of terrorists and terrorism. And the message, of course, is don't let that change your life. Go out, do all the things that you did before 9-11, enjoy your life, and so on. And ironically, coronavirus is telling us, authorities are telling us, the exact opposite, that um, don't go out. (laughs) <laughs> Don't live your normal life. Instead, huddle inside. Stay at home. So let me tell you, um, there are four things that I'm going to be talking about, uh, new new things, <laughs> where terrorism and coronavirus interact. Okay? So the first one relates to the U.S. And it has to do with how FISA... Um, the foreign intelligence surveillance act which was put into effect after 9 11 that has expired on march 15th and congress who is totally absorbed with coronavirus has let it expire and has disagreed about how they want to uh, change it add to it uh, and so on so they left without, without um, continuing it in any way. You know, it, it has just expired because there were arguments about what to do with it. In other words, what to add, whether to add to it, whether to subtract to it, how to change it, and so on. So nothing has happened. You know, that's, that's the solution, right? Um, if you can't agree, uh, just go home. <laughs> Don't figure out what to do. Of course, I'm being sarcastic. Um, now, th- this has some important effects, the fact that it has expired. It, um, it means that the surveillance powers of the FBI have been curtailed. So for example, um, their, uh, it has limited their ability to pursue some terrorism suspects and you know this is part of the ripple effect of the coronavirus, the concentration on coronavirus. So the FBI, for example, has, um, is now unable to, the Justice Department has now been unable to obtain some wiretaps because of the expiration of visa and to file requests to obtain business records from companies in connection with national, with national security investigations And um, also, um, some powers that have elapsed are being able to wiretap a suspect who has switched phones, which is known as roving wiretaps. And all, probably most importantly, it has decreased their powers to conduct surveillance on lone wolf terrorists who don't have any already discernible ties to a foreign terrorist organization. Now, if you've listened to um, one of my previous podcasts where I talked about the terrorist um, who had fortunately been under surveillance before <laughs> before this elapsed, and uh, so that he was had been planning on perpetrating a terrorist attack. And when coronavirus, coronavirus um, came in, <laughs> Um, he accelerated his plans to perpetrate the attack and he was decided to attack a hospital that was treating coronavirus patients because that's where there was a crowd since now, you know, they they can't go to the usual places, restaurants and movie theaters and streets and all of that. So fortunately, um, the FBI was on top of this and when he came to meet... Uh, some undercover agents to pick up a bomb they um, to to perpetrate this attack on the hospital they arrested him so that that kind of thing now that the uh, this, the FISA act is uh, in limbo that kind of thing would be in danger because um, if if they hadn't already um, F- found out that he was connected to foreign agents or some future lone wolf, in other words, um, if, if they don't haven't made that connection yet in their investigation. Now let's talk about um, what's happening in terms of coronavirus and uh, terrorism in the Middle East. The um, US and the coalition forces uh, have become less aggressive towards ISIS in Iraq and the Middle East because of, um, because of things related to coronavirus. So this is giving uh, a boost to ISIS and they are already planning on reestablishing the caliphate uh, one, one bit at a time. Because they are, because there are fewer troops um, in Iraq, and um, the basically the coronavirus has given the terrorists ISIS um, some breathing room, some time to um, reestablish the uh, caliphate. So while we are counting the dead, ISIS is um, enjoying new life. And thinking about um, bringing about new life, notif- notably the caliphate. Now, um, for example, not only uh, is, in the, is this in regard to the U.S., but on March 19th, so you know the, the uh, coronavirus was started in full force. Well, <laughs> can't say full force at this point, but started in um, in large force uh, in March. And so March 19th, because of the virus, the coalition and NATO training missions suspended operations for two months. And maybe, of course, they're gonna do it for longer. Um, By March 29th, Australia, Spain, France, the UK, New Zealand, Portugal, and the Netherlands had withdrawn almost all of their trainers from the Middle East. And of course, the U.S. has been withdrawing from frontline operation, frontline operations in places in Iraq. Um, during the last week of March, they were doing that, and they are uh, the U.S. forces are being re- redistributed. I mean, the U.S. hasn't left altogether, but they're being redistributed inside fewer but better protected, protected. Iraqi bases, you know, you remember on January 8th there was the Iranian missile attack that left more than a hundred US troops with mild traumatic brain injuries. So now the US has protected some bases better with um, missile defenses. So the troops that we have are better protected, but they are in fewer places. So, um, Also, the the Iraqi military, so in other words, the NATO and these other countries that I mentioned, and the U.S. and the Iraqi military, who was helping the U.S. and coalition forces, they are distracted also, looking after their own health um, and their families' health. So there, altogether, operations have slackened, and um, their operations in particular, because of the, um, the disruption to the U.S.-led uh, coalition. You know, all of the intelligence, all of the planning, all of the air support, all of that, basically things have kind of calmed down on the um, part of the U.S. and the Iraqi military and the coalition forces. And so the is, so ISIS is taking advantage of this and they are thinking of this as a godsend. And when we come back, I will talk more about how this is a literal godsend, so stay tuned. Welcome back to the Terrorist Therapist Show, where we're talking today about coronavirus plus jihadists equal terror overload. Uh, I guarantee you have not, probably not. I don't think you have heard about these stories that I'm going to be telling you about today, these four stories. Uh, where terrorism and coronavirus intersect. So before we broke, I was telling you about how, what was happening in the Middle East and how this was giving, um, this was considered a godsend by ISIS, coronavirus and its distraction uh, to the rest of the world uh, is is being considered a, a godsend literally by ISIS because they look at coronavirus as an act of divine intervention, hitting the West, Westerners, non-believers, um, you know, destroying, killing non-believers, not only killing non-believers, but our society. I mean, putting our whole uh, American society into problems, You know, notably economic problems and so on. And that had been Osama, but before 9-11, or even after 9-11, that was Osama bin Laden's plan all along, which was to ruin the economy of the United States. Not just killing people. I mean, he knew that 9-11 wasn't going to kill everybody in the United States. Um, But he was hoping that it was going to ruin our economy so much that then it would be easier for them to come in and destroy us. Well, now this is happening, well, I don't wanna be that bleak, but now there's a risk of this happening certainly with um, coronavirus. And also, um, Osama was uh, big on bioterrorism, by the way. Um, You know, we're gonna know when this is all said and done, when we come out of coronavirus, um, there are going to be investigations into the root of this, not only in terms of uh, China, you know, did it come from an errant bat, a lone bat um, in this market? Uh, did it come from a lab? You know, of course, it's been seeming clearer and clearer. And I've talked about this in previous podcasts about how there are, um, even even back then, uh, when I did the podcast, there were reports of it coming from a lab near the market and um, the uh, a lab worker one or more lab workers being tainted by blood of the bats that they were experimenting on uh, in the lab and that getting to the market, perhaps through a bat, perhaps through a worker. In any case, um, we're going to, you know, did it have anything to do with Osama bin Laden or ISIS or that kind of terrorism? Um, It will become clear at some point but clearly, this is more than it. It just seems like there's something um, underlying this more than a random uh, coronavirus, you know, one one virus <laughs> or one bat. Um, okay, getting back to terrorism, this kind of terrorism, Islamic uh, radical Islamic terrorism. So they are believing that this is a godsend uh, because it is putting our economy and our society into chaos. Really. And so, um, and in the ISIS newsletter um, Al Naba, they called cor- coronavirus guard, God's torment, Allah's torment, upon the Crusader nations, and of course, they're telling their fighters to take advantage of this distraction and disruption. Now, here's a really interesting point. Um, In a way, terrorists, ISIS and and all terrorists, you know, ISIS, Al Qaeda, they are the ultimate doomsday preppers. Did you ever think of that? I never thought of that before. (laughs) But they are the ultimate doomsday preppers because they are very well adapted to surviving a pandemic because their cells are isolated they already are practicing social distancing, you know, in their caves, in the desert, Um, they have less risk of contamination. And uh, also uh, the leadership of ISIS and Al-Qaeda, the the terrorist leadership, uh, gave instructions to terrorists on how to limit their exposure to the virus. They followed the CDC approved recommendations, washing your hands, covering up your coughs and sneezes and so on. And then um, they also pointed to Quranic verses involving lions and leprosy, which somehow uh, was to protect them, tell them how to protect themselves. So they're living in these remote hideouts, these underground shelters, they have Um, independent food and water supplies, you know, each cell and they have, um, solar battery chargers, chargers, which power their electronic devices. So it's like they are the ultimate doomsday preppers. So while we're, well, we're going to beaches in Florida because of spring break, right. Um, and doing all these other things, um, They are in their caves and in their desert hideouts, and they are doing just fine. Not all of them, but they are better protected, better um, equipped already to uh, survive than we are because, you know, we are uh, more in need of socialization. Okay, here's the third of my four uh, examples of the interaction between coronavirus and terrorism. There is a terrorist who was named, who is named Ibrahim Mohammed, who um, was in jail. He was scheduled to be released from a US prison in um March. And he is now in an ICE facility, not ISIS, <laughs> but ICE facility. Um, and his family is all upset because there are people with coronavirus in this ICE facility. I mean, give me a break. There are also people with coronavirus in prisons. So, you know, <laughs> um, he might have just been just as uh, at risk. He, he was clearly at, at risk in his uh, prison as he was, just as he was in the, in the um, ICE detention center. He's at the detention center is in Aurora, Colorado. He's awaiting deportation to India after he served two and a half years in prison. He's 39 years old, and he was supposed to have been deported after serving his term. But the coronavirus pandemic, along with India's decision to shutter its borders, meant that he was transferred to this ICE processing center where there were there are these inmates who supposedly are ill with coronavirus um and the family's complaining and he's complaining i mean give me a break they're complaining there's no room inside his cell to walk or to practice social distancing which you know if he's in his own cell that would be distancing enough um and he began exhibiting symptoms um, He's under a 23 hour lockdown with three other detainees. I mean, I guess they're all in the same cell. And they don't know, however, I guess he hasn't been tested yet. So they don't know if it's the flu or a cold or coronavirus, but they are complaining. He, his story is that he was arrested in 2015 by the FBI after being accused of conspiring to provide material support to terrorists. And he was waiting two years for trial and then he, the government gave him a plea deal. He was a structural engineer, and they gave him a plea deal. Um, although, to the end, he was, well, I guess not till the end. And, well, I, I mean, he took the plea deal in the end, but he still claimed that um, he was innocent, right? Um, but he pled guilty to have this plea deal. So, and to get a reduced sentence of two and a half years and then be deported, of course, then unfortunately (laughs) the coronavirus came and he couldn't be deported because India wouldn't take him back. You know, they had already shut their doors and um, he is now in a cell with, in a place where there's a risk of coronavirus. But again, as I said, there's a risk in regular prisons and jails too. So, you know, really? All right, Um, number four, Belgium. This is a really fascinating story. Um, I have a friend in Belgium, a friend from medical school. I went to medical school at the University of Louvain in Belgium, in French, by the way. (laughs) And and she sent me a, a video of what happened in a place near Brussels, called Anderlecht. And uh, that is the place along with Molenbeek, those two little towns or cities, um, which are right at the um, sort of suburbs of Brussels um, are the places where there are the most um, radical Islamists in, in Belgium. If not in uh, Europe, in fact, uh, there are some people who say that um, instead of bombing the Middle East or, you know, fighting in the Middle East, you should just uh, bomb or fight the people in the Molenbeek and Anderlecht, that there are so many radical Islamists there right in the center of Europe. So um, I will, when we come back, I will tell you the story of what just happened there. And I watched the video um, and it was horrible. It was really horrible. And what is, what's fascinating though, is when I tried to look this up to get it up, to get more information about it, There was hardly anything about it on the internet. You know, again, PC, PC, uh, And certainly nothing that actually, you know, called it what it was, but I will tell you about it when we come back. Welcome back to the Terrorist Therapist Show, where we're talking today about four stories of where coronavirus and terrorism intersect. Uh, And looking at uh, how coronavirus plus jihadists equal terror overload. Um, I started telling you the story of what happened in Belgium in uh, a town called Anderlecht. Uh, You know, Belgium is comprised of um, about half French. It's about half French-speaking and half Flemish-speaking people. And um, Anderlecht and um, Molenbeek are the two suburbs of of, uh, Brussels, where there are the most radical Islamists. And there have been, it has, they have been growing, the, these communities of radical Islamists have been growing and um, committing more problems, more violence in the streets. And, and in fact, um, that was where um, the, the, one of the people who was the, one of the leaders Of the French, the 2015 um, French attack—you know, of the um, uh, well, the the huge, the largest attack in Paris. There, his name was Salah Abdeslam. He was this was was the he was one of the main leaders of the November 2015 Paris attacks, and he was arrested in this area, Molenbeek. in uh, 2016. And uh, so, and there were others in that same area involved in the Paris attacks. So anyhow, there was, uh, so my, as I was trying to say, my, my friend from medical school, who became a doctor as well, she sent me a video um, that was taken by, it wasn't a, a, um, a media, it wasn't from a television station, it was a witness. Uh, who took a video of this attack happening and um, it was quite a brutal attack. The part of it uh, that the video caught, there was more to it, but the part that the video caught was um, these people uh, attacking a police car and turning it upside down and just hitting it with batons and and um, just so whatever they could hit it with, um, breaking the windows and uh, turning it on its side. And, and somebody took a, um, a gun from there and was shooting it. All of a sudden in the middle of this, this attack went on for a long time. And in the middle of it, uh, you heard gunshots. And, you know, I couldn't see from the angle of this um, of the video uh, what that was. But then I, I found in the one story, actually, there were two stories about it that I found. Um, it described it as, as it being a gunshot from one of these youths, um, stealing it from the police car. So how did this happen? Why did this happen? It all started when a 19-year-old boy named Adil was riding a scooter and was stopped by police to check on, you know, what he was doing outside, because um, they have a lockdown as well. And so instead of just letting them check him and talk to him, they, uh, he tried to escape. And he ran on his, I mean, he went fast on his scooter, And he went right into, um, he was going on the wrong side of the road and he ended up going into a police car, you know, smashing into a police car and dying, which was really sad. And news of this got out to the people in Anderlecht um, and uh, they all came out into the street and created a riot. Now his family have, ha, uh, has appealed for calm. Uh, they said what his aunt said, Adil was a very calm young man, always smiling and full of life. He was liked by everyone, his family, his friends. He was a boy without problems, a diabetic of fragile health. Now, isn't that interesting? I wonder if um, the media, in Belgium is driving home, which probably is, driving home the same thing that the media is in the US, which is that people who have underlying physical problems um, are more at risk for uh, dying from coronavirus. But And I wonder if, you know, I, I've been doing a lot of talking about how people are committing suicide more, um, which I call covid it's uh, someone who out of fear and desperation commits, related to coronavirus, commits suicide. I call that covicide. Um, so I wonder if it was an accident that Adil ran into this uh, police car, you know, in his efforts to get away from the police, he just mashed into the police car, going down the wrong way, or whether it was really on purpose because he was so scared that he was gonna die if he got it because he had diabetes. Well, I don't know if we'll ever know the answer to that. But what we do know (laughs) is that that it caused a riot um, because of the youths in the town. You know, it was an anti-authority, anti-police riot. And that's what these radical Islamists in, particularly in these two suburbs of Brussels are doing, have been doing before coronavirus. And certainly now that, uh, you know, here, it it seemed like the police killed this uh, young man, even though he was the one who ran into the police car. Anyhow, um, the family has been asking for calm and asking, Uh, for time to mourn his passing you know Um, and then the mayor of Anderlecht said the idea of mourning was far from the minds of the troublemakers you know letting the family mourn in peace was far from their minds they didn't come here to mourn the memory of young Adil they came here to cause a riot they came to cause violence their motivation was very clear it's true most, you know, probably not all these people who came out of the street, into the streets, 45 people were arrested in this uh, riot. So it is unlikely that they all knew a deal, (laughs) Um, but this was an opportunity to, you know, a good excuse to create a riot. So eventually the police came and squelched the riot, Um, but the, the rioters Uh, enjoy their opportunity to have yet another riot and yet another um, time to uh, show their displeasure with authority, with the police, and so on. Okay, so I promised you at the beginning, tips for staying sane until the coronavirus passes. Um, Okay, so, um, you know, the key to coming out of these challenging times is your attitude. So, if you begin each day with a "woe is me" attitude, having to be in lockdown will seem like solitary confinement. But my way of looking at this is to look at this time as a gift, because you know we we all go around um, like little hamsters in cages with work filling. You know that the, there isn't enough time in a day to do all the things that you have to do between work and family and taking care of yourself and everything else just before coronavirus. There was never enough time for that. So having to be in lockdown is, in a sense, a gift. The books that you wanted to read, never had time for. The people you wanted to try to find on the internet you had lost contact with, you now can find. Um, Anything, cleaning out the closet, (laughs) whatever your Uh, things were that you put on hold, this is now a gift uh, to be able to have the time to do it. And it's up to you if you want to waste your time with fear-mongering news or fear-mongering people who will only stress you out and stress weakens the immune system. So one of the things um, that you can think about, um, I mean, first of all, also this is going to give you time I mean, this. T- think of time, the key is to think of this time as a gift and all of the things that you could do, like you could if you wanted to learn French, <laughs> for example, um, or how to play the guitar or how to cook, whatever it is that you wanted to learn to do, you now have no excuse because you have plenty of time and it's up to you if you want to waste this time watching, watching fear-mongering media. Um, There are lots of other things, of course, all kinds of stress relievers, that's key to each day, make sure you include that. Um, And also, you can keep a journal to get in touch with yourself, to get in touch with your thoughts and your feelings and what you wanna change in your life when it's over. Notably, think about all your childhood dreams. What were your childhood dreams that you let go because you know of the necessities of life you had to make money or you had to do this or do that or uh, what what you know when you were a kid like before you turned 18 during your childhood what is it that you really dreamed of doing and can you still do that maybe you dreamed of being um an actress, a Broadway actress. Well, maybe it's too late to do that, but you could certainly act in a community uh, theater. Maybe you wanted to um, do whatever, maybe you, whatever you're, you know, maybe you wanted to be an athlete uh, on a a, a pro team, you know, a pro baseball player or a basketball player. Well, maybe it's a little too late to do that, but you can certainly, there are certainly basketball and baseball and all kinds of other teams in your neighborhood um, that you could join, you know, community teams. So things like that. So just use this time as a gift. Now, And you will be better armed (laughs) than uh, other people because you will also know about things that terrorists are doing. And you won't be caught off guard uh, if things happen either during lockdown or after lockdown where there might be attacks. So now is the time to get yourself in a psychological and physical state where you can uh, be strong with whatever it is that is going to be coming our way. Well, thank you for listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist.